Lord, we thank you for the gift of today to come to worship your son. We thank you for the men and women who serve this country in defense of our nation, and we pray your special blessing over them. We also thank you for the men and women who have given their lives in defense of this country. But today we also want to remember your son who gave his life to forgive sinners. We ask for your help understanding your word today. In your son's name I pray, amen. All right, please be seated. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. So we're continuing our series in Luke. So a bit of warning for us today. This is a really difficult passage that we have before us. Ultimately, it's going to show us the majesty of Christ, but there is some sobering news of God's judgment of sin. As our namesake states, we're Redeemer Bible Church. We see Christ as the only redeemer of sinners, and we see the Bible as God's standard of truth. So that means that we will preach through passages that are even difficult, but as a word of encouragement, even though they may seem difficult, they're beneficial and edifying for us. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So y'all just took a seat, but to honor the Lord, would you please stand with me as our, our tradition of the church, as I read for us our main passage. This is Luke 17, verses 1 through 6. Then he said unto the disciples, It is impossible that offense, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It would be better for him that a millstone were hung about his neck, and he were cast into the sea, then he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turns again to thee, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you might say unto the sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Please be seated. So before addressing verse 2, this severe judgment, I think it's important that we understand more what are these offenses that we're being warned about in verse 1. You probably caught from the outdated language that I'm using the King James versions. Other versions you might be using, say, temptations to sin. But I chose this version for a purpose in trying to understand this better myself. The word offense, I was trying to look up, what is this, what is this offense? It led me to the original Greek word that is translated as offense, and that's scandalon. I believe I'm saying that right. I know there's Greek scholars in the audience, but... <laughs> I listened to a YouTube clip, and that's how they pronounced it. So. <laughs> but I consulted a concordance, just a theological dictionary, for what is a scandalon, which was the original word used here. Well, it has a multifold definition. One definition is it's the bent stick for a bait trap, literally the mechanism that when an animal brushes against it, it springs the trap. It can also refer to a stumbling block or something literally in the ground that causes you to trip. 
The Bible calls that being cast headlong, but can really divert a person from walking in the way they should go. And lastly, it can be translated as an offense, and that's what we use. That's what we have in the King James Version. So in thinking about this warning against being a person who sets a trap for others, for that bent stick, that scandalon definition, what that does is it ultimately sets in motion a sequence of events that's fatal for that animal. So a treat is placed in a trap to lure an animal in, but it's fatal for that animal. For those of you who fish, another way to think about it is this is the lure. You know, the lure is designed to look like something good for that fish. It's prey, something it wants, but it leads them to catch the hook. It doesn't end well for the fish either. So it's helpful to, when we think of an offense in this fashion, the warnings that we have from Christ here, it's a warning against being a scandal on. So that's a person who sets a trap or lure to snare others to commit sin or stumbles them into sin or hinders them in going the way they should go. So one example of being a scandal, and we're warned in so many places in the Bible that God hates sin and that he judges sin. We could take many, but consider the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is associated with a book of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 24 through 27, we read, Enemies disguise themselves with their lips, but in their hearts they harbor deceit. Though their speech is charming, do not believe them, for seven abominations fill their hearts. Their malice may be concealed by deception, but their wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. What God is telling us here is when we plot the downfall of others, it's going to come out. We will eventually be exposed. But it further warns that if we try to set traps for others, it's going to seal our own fate. And that kind of overt sin, that reminded me of Haman in the book of the Bible. We remember Haman in the book of Esther. Haman hated the Jewish people, and he wanted to eradicate them. But in particular, he hated one righteous man, Mordecai. And he set out a trap for Mordecai to execute him on gallows very publicly. But in the end, Haman was killed on his own gallows. But this is where we might be tempted to check out and say, well, I'm not Haman, I'm not... I'm not engaged in this kind of malevolent plotting. I'm not, you know, what might catch the headlines. And this is where we need to consider the other components of being a scandal on. The book of the, Bi the book, sorry, throughout the Bible, we're warned of the consequences of even stumbling others into sin. And we're warned in many places that even imagining sin in our minds, that that bears great consequences from the Lord. So would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So Matthew chapter 5 is full of Christ's statements correcting misconceptions people have that they're innocent before God if they just haven't done the worst sins, such as murder or adultery. But in this chapter, and throughout, the, <laughs> throughout all of his teaching, Christ reveals that God's standards of righteousness are so much higher than man's. So I'm going to read this passage for us. Chapter 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come 
but I have come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches the others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So God's standards for righteousness, for salvation, far exceeds just not committing the worst sins. And one of the problems that we have is we often judge ourselves compared to the worst people that we know, or maybe someone in the news. But here we're told we need to think of, so the Pharisees and the scribes, when Christ was teaching, people would see them as they're the best of, the, of that culture. And so what he's telling us here is that think of the best person you know. If you're not more righteous on your own, on your own sake, you will not enter heaven. And if we would to press forward through that chapter, we see where the Lord says, even anger in your heart is judged as if you were a murderer. It goes on to say many things that are surprising to us. That desiring someone who's not your spouse is to the Lord as if you committed adultery. And so in this passage here, and in our main passage, we're clearly warned that premeditating sin in our minds or orchestrating the sins of others or even stumbling others into sin will be held against us. And these kind of warnings are nothing new. The very, fir very first person who murdered was Cain, and God gave him a warning before he did that. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, he tells Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So like Cain today, we are called to examine ourselves. Are we a scandal on? Maybe we're not this, maybe you're not actively setting a trap, but are you a stumbling block to others? This can take many subtle forms, and it doesn't take a lot of imagination to come up with examples that really just scratch the surface. But rather than come up with my own examples, I have one following one from the Lord. He warns us how critical it is of what we ingest through our eyes, as or what we set our eyes on. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, we are told, the eyes are the lamp of the body, if your eyes are good, your whole body would be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So we don't just need to be on guard for protecting our own eyes. But for us today, we need to be on guard of protecting the eyes of others. In particular, this makes me think of protecting our children as well as our peers. Now, a lot of us use a filter in your water in the refrigerator. Fortunately, if you're like me, you don't change it as often as you should. <laughs> but are we as intentional about filtering what our children, what they are seeing, what they are setting their minds on? You know, the, just the media, the landscape of media that's out there today is full of so much worse toxins to the soul than not changing your water filter. <laughs> Even with our peers, you know, the shows that we watch, are there things in it that, you know, we, oh, it's a great show, I love this or that about it, 
And in your mind, you're excusing things that you know are wrong. And, you're re- and perhaps are you recommending that to others? Could that stumble them into sin? Are there things that, and I want to be sensitive to the audience, are there inappropriate things that could snare people into sin? So now that we spent a lot of time preparing to, to try to help us receive verse 2. So if it's the case that God holds those accountable who stumble others into sin, how bad could it be? Well, if we look at verse 2, it's incredibly bad. It's the, humans would not come up with this kind of judgment. It would be better for him that a millstone were hung about his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should have been one of these little ones. Think about that for a minute. How does that hit you? It would be better for a person that causes the sin of others to be drowned in the sea. So I don't want to press the point too hard, but as modern Americans, I think at least our culture at large, the thing that we fear the most is death. If we just think a little bit over the last year, think about all the radical steps our society has done just to prevent one type of death through covid So I think we really struggle to comprehend there being anything worse than death. Further, to take it just a little further, even our justice system, we often do not execute people who have murdered other people, who have taken the life. We, we, in a wrong way, don't even put those people to death. But this was not the case for the Greeks and the Romans. This type of death Christ is describing here had been very common in the first century. There are multiple historical references to this type of drowning punishment being reserved for particularly heinous criminals in the first century, criminals who killed their own family members. So most of us may know what a millstone is, but it's not the hand millstone that you ground wheat. It's rather a large millstone, so large that a donkey, it's usually like a wheel, that a donkey or some strong animal would pull across grain. So needless to say, no person with this type of weight on them would be able to survive this type of death. It's a terrible death. So given that Christ Christ presents this as the better option for us should be really sobering because what could be worse? Well, we talked about this last week in chapter 16 and I'm using Matthew a lot today, but the answer from Luke 16 or from Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 is, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So this passage, like our chapter last week in 16, really drives home the reality that there is such a place as hell. We read last week that it, of the man that was in hell, that there was no opportunity for once he's there to leave. We were told, but Abraham answered, child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received his bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. And besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that even those who wish cannot cross from here to you, nor can anyone cross from there to us. So we, as the Lord said, really need ears to hear the reality of hell. The opportunity for salvation is just available for us today. And Christ tells us in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what 
makes heaven heaven. I mean, people have many views of what heaven, and there's a lot of corrupt views in common media and culture. What makes heaven heaven is that's where the Lord dwells. That's his throne room. And no sinful person without the perfect sac- that's not covered by the perfect sacrifice of Christ may enter. So therefore, when he tells us in these passages in Luke that causing others to sin is so dire, your death is a better alternative, we need to listen on account of the reality of his righteous judgment. I also looked at the commentators to study this passage, and they are pretty blunt that here the Lord said it would be more profitable, and that's not the way that we normally understand the word profit of like, in this understanding, it means it will be better in the sense that it stops a person from piling up sins, leading to greater judgment and greater damage of other people. It literally separates them from the community. So sin is so serious that it demands God's righteous judgment. We're going to move a little further, (laughs) excuse me, a little faster through these next verses. But one thing that really caught me this week and in the preceding weeks in preparation is we cannot escape in verse 2 of 17 this special attention Christ calls out to little ones. So Matthew chapter 18 is a parallel passage, and I really encourage this would be a great exercise of, of faith in the Lord. It'd be very strengthening to, on your own, read Matthew chapter 18, which helps us understand this passage more. But in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, we read, Those who shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it would be better for him that a millstone were hung about his neck, and he were drowned in the sea. So here he's explicitly tying it to little ones who believe in him. So little ones can refer to people who are truly little in age. And we think most often of little ones as children. But it can also refer to people who are young or weak in faith. Interestingly, the Lord even calls the disciples children at places in context of usually of them expressing little faith in him. But unlike fallen man, the Lord clearly has regard for little ones, for the weakest of the earth and the most vulnerable. He tells us even of birds. Are not two birds sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And this is a passage that we have said many times. This church has a great heart for adoption. But in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, it reads, God is a father who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. To further understand Christ's love for little ones, in Matthew 19.4 we read, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So hinder, do not stumble them. And I'm going to use the King James Version one more time for emphasis. In chapter 24, verse 10, we read, and the king shall answer and say unto them, Truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Here in part, this helps us understand why sinning against little ones is so severe. It's actually sin against the Lord. So it's imperative as parents to children, relatives, caretakers, or maybe just a neighbor to children, that we are not to be a stumbling block to them walking with the Lord. It is a great 
evil against the Lord to snuff out their fruitfulness for him at a young age, and God will hold us accountable. So in preparing, I absolutely found myself guilty. I'm, I've been a scandal on. So this is where the good news of Christ shows forth. He is our light, as we have sung today. So what's the solution to being a scandal on? Well, amazingly, the solution is to first be reconciled to God. We can be set free of God's righteous judgment if we acknowledge our sin and confess our sin to Christ. In 1 John chapter 1-9 we read, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So that's my appeal today. That's the, that, that would be the main thing, is we need to be reconciled to God. But then we don't stop there. The next step is, is that we need to put on love. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, we read, The person who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. If we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we love little ones, we will not bring offenses into their life. The use of the word abide, this, so we have the CD series, it's called Slugs and Bugs. It's like a kid's series, and some of you are very familiar, but they sing the Bible, but all, we've been hearing the, I am the vine, you are the branches. They make a song about the Lord says, he is the vine, we are the branches, and if we abide in him, we will bear love. We can't produce this kind of love that the Lord requires on our own. And as is always the pattern, the Lord calls us to be reconciled first and then to go to other people. Remove the plank from our own eyes before we remove the speck. So now we're, we're going to push much faster through three through six. But we now address, well, what do we do if other people are stumbling us? They're sinning against us and it's damaging so we'll reread 3 through 6. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day again say to you, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had the faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, Be plucked up by the root and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So first, Christ is telling us, examine yourselves first. But then he calls us, be on guard for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is not a call that we go rebuke or strongly correct people that are not Christians. This is only for people who are, have been adopted by God, who can call God their father through Christ. So it's not instructions to go correct the unbelieving world in this passage. And chapter 18 gives a lot, as I kind of laid out the challenge earlier, gives us a lot of extra steps. And we've talked about this as a church of how to do this correction. And one thing that I would like to say is we need to be wise on this too. It needs to truly be an offense against the Lord that we're correcting. Clearly, when the disciples heard Christ tell them that even in a day you should forgive them seven times, and we hear other places more than seven times, they were really marveled at that level of forgiveness. We do not forgive naturally like this. 
the use of seven here is kind of like what we opened up in Proverbs. Seven, seven, we have seven days in a week. Seven is often used in the Bible to express completeness. So this forgiveness now is not, I'm going to forgive you 80% of there, but you, <laughs> I'm putting you on watch the rest of the day. This is total and complete forgiveness, and it's radical forgiveness. And the disciples in verse 5, they clearly marvel at that. This is the disciples that are marveling here. And they say, increase our faith, because great faith is needed to carry out this level of forgiveness. But in verse 6, he doesn't, surprisingly, he doesn't relax his standards. Instead, he says, if you had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you would say into the sycamine tree, be plucked up by the root and planted in the sea, and it should obey you. So how can small faith be great faith? The answer is, is that small faith can be great faith if who you are trusting in or what you're trusting in, the object of your faith, is powerful. The Lord made the universe. There's no, more, there's no one more powerful than that. So even a small faith, you know, this mustard seed, it was an incredibly minute seed, but could grow up to an amazing tree. So that's how small faith can be great faith. And here we have a pretty fascinating description from the Lord of what small faith in him can do. And I don't ever want to gloss over when it says this, this, that our voice itself could actually affect creation and not just say, well, this is purely metaphorical or this is truly what is being said. I, I believe in this passage, it's both, that if the Lord empowers you to act on creation in this way, you will. If we consider Peter for a moment, Peter literally walked on the water when he had faith in the Lord. But when he looked at the waves and he doubted the Lord, he sank in that sea. But the Lord rescued him from it. And that is the hope today for us, that we've talked about this millstone pulling us down, that the Lord can deliver us just like Peter. But I also want to focus briefly, as we near the close, the metaphorical side of this. What is a sycamine tree? <laughs> That's that old King James Version. It's... <laughs> It's a sycamore tree. We know of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. That's the tree he climbed up. And I wanted to learn more about this tree, and I found this great article titled by Bob Betty, by Bob Betty in 2013. And it says, why did Jesus compare unforgiveness to the sycamine tree? So in it, he lists the following characteristics of this tree. I found some more. You know, these are so interesting. One of them that you can't plant them next to water. They had provisions that you wouldn't plant this type of tree next to water because you didn't want to poison the water with bitterness. But let's read Bob's description. He said, first, the sycamine tree had a large and deep root structure, one of the deepest root structures in the Middle East, growing down 30 feet or more. Because it went down so far, this, this root structure, it was very hard to kill. It's a very tenacious tree. It would just keep springing back up. Second, the tree's wood was preferred for building caskets and coffins, and it grew best in dry places, and it was very easily accessible. Third, the sycamine tree produced a fig. This fig was not a fig you'd want to eat. It was very bitter. You could not eat it in one bite. You had to nibble at it a little bit at a time. And fourth, it was pollinated not by bees, but by wasps. So literally to reproduce, this tree has to be stung. And this is a really accurate picture of a heart that is bitter, that won't forgive. 
the roots of bitterness go down very deep, just like this tree. And this fruit of bitterness, a bitter person, what they are sending out to other people, it's not beneficial for the well-being of others. And they multiply the bitterness with venomous stings. So to conclude, I want to remind us that Christ can excise, he can take out these bitter roots of bitterness, bitter roots of, excuse me, these deep roots of bitterness. He tells us in John chapter 8, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we've already discussed about how he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all sins. This capacity testifies to the majesty of Christ. And we've talked a lot about hell today, but he tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive and liveth forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and of death. So in our passage today, we are warned by the one who holds the keys to heaven and hell himself. He offers us reconciliation. We can be made by him into a new creation and can be forgiven for the times that we've stumbled others into sin. We don't have to bear in our lives the bitter fruits like the sycamine tree, but instead we can bear fruits that's called worthy of repentance. So to end today, I want to read one last passage in 2 Corinthians. This is a beautiful and powerful appeal by Paul for us today. And he tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was entrusting, he was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. And my charge for us today, like Paul says, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So with that, I'd like to close with a brief prayer to the Lord. Please would you bow with me. Father, we come to confess our sins against you. We ask for that you would forgive us for the times that we have led others astray into sin. We pray for those individuals now that you would put them back on the right path with you. We also ask that you would search our hearts, and if we have bitter hearts today, and there are people that we will not forgive, we pray that you would release us from this bitterness. We thank you for your Son, who is the perfect Redeemer. In his name I pray.